So we'll be continuing our study in the book of Genesis. So if you would please um, join me if, you, if you're able to stand. And I'll be reading a few verses from Genesis um, chapters 2, verses 15 through 17. And then in chapter 3, the first 13 verses. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So beginning in Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And now in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You may be seated. Thank you, Tom. In order to best appreciate what we just heard, I think it's good to recap where we've been in these last weeks, looking at these first pages of the Bible in a time of great confusion in our culture, how good it is to see how God's Word gives us clear answers to some of life's biggest questions straight away. And I think you'd say, well, God is presented on the scene in the beginning God created, that he's already there, uh, that he stands before us. We occupy his theater of glory, that it all belongs to him, not here by chance, but because of a good God who made everything. Then who are we? Again, generations of young people now have been told, well, you're just the product of the soup, uh, that you've been, you're here by chance, that there's no real meaning behind your life. You just kind of emerge. Therefore, uh, whatever you make of yourself, just find your own way, out-compete, and as long as you have some kind of competitive advantage, then I guess that's a successful life. And you say, for a lot of us, these are not satisfactory answers to those kinds of big questions. 
but rather what the Bible says does uh, give us clear answers that God made everything and he made people with a real purpose, that he's endowed us with gifts and capacities uh, to represent him and to rule. And that's where we're gonna find our purpose and our meaning. And beyond that, we said another issue kind of coming at this from a different angle is what this text would tell us about science. That those from a naturalistic standpoint, as those who don't allow God into their worldview, they say you have to choose between God and science. Uh, you can't have them both. And you say, well, that's not a binary that the Bible forces us to choose one side or the other, but rather uh, we would want to choose between God and chance. That is to say, the Bible doesn't say it's God or science, it says it's God or chance. We're on the side of God that he's ordered everything. Remember, we talked about that. That's why mathematicians and physicists, that they'll talk about things like the beauty of mathematics or how it seems that the earth has been finely tuned, that it's uh, made just right for human life, exactly as the Bible says. And you look at how God made everything in chapters one and two, that everything God does is very good, that the creator is gracious and good. Any other conceptions of God, you say, I think, are put to rest. You say, is God just, uh, you know, this mean, indifferent God in the sky somewhere out there? You say, no, I've, we see him as supremely good and gracious, that he's made everything just so for human life, that he's given a beautiful garden, a beautiful land. You even have verses like 2-9 that we often skip over, that God even makes the trees pleasing to the sight that it's a place where there's abundant food and lots of water and all kinds of natural resources. We talked about last week, gold and onyx and things that we can cultivate, right? We're to make a civilization. We're given a purpose. We're given freedom and dominion. That we're to enjoy fellowship with God. And you look at this and you say, one way of describing is this is a highly integrated, balanced creation. Highly integrated, everything from our, our, our gender to our marriages to our relationship with God to how we're to get on with nature to how we're to be purposed. Say everything's highly integrated and balanced. They say, now we have a problem. Say, this is not the world which we live in today. So it doesn't take very long, even in the church, to recognize that this is not a, a highly integrated, perfectly balanced environment where everyone's doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're in perfect union with one another. All marriages are great. We're in perfect union with God. You say, far be it from what we experience. Say, actually, what we realize even in our own hearts, in our own lives and relationships, say things aren't what they ought to be. It's hard that I don't think one day would pass, even when we're on vacation. You say, think back to our perfect day that we've had. Say, not one day has been, oh, everything went exactly as I'd wanted to go. And oftentimes, we've been plunged quite low. That we're even to the point of despair and, again, feel disunity with God and others. You say, what in the world went wrong? How did God's highly integrated, balanced creation be subjected to what we experience every day? You know, I would talk about this uh, early on at Baldwin-Wallace. I'd come in, and every year the students would uh, give a talk, and they say, well, we want to know the problem of evil, right? And the question on a lot of our minds, if you, you, you say, God, everything he makes is good, uh, but how in the world, then, are we supposed to make sense of this world in, in which we live? And I'd always use a, a photograph to start that discussion. Uh, it's from 1993. Even today, as looking at it yesterday, I still uh, have a tough time with it. It brings me to tears. It won the Pulitzer Prize that year. It was of the Sudanese famine. Maybe you remember, uh, initially, they thought the little child in the picture was a girl. Actually, uh, is a little boy. And this little Sudanese boy, I don't know, three, hard to tell because uh, the body's so emaciated, just hunched over in starvation, the skinny little limbs, uh, just barely clinging to life on the dusty sand, hunched over. And right behind the child is a giant vulture. 
uh, just waiting to pounce on the carcass and made all the more worse in that time to think that, well, when we have issues of famines, that it's uh, often an issue of bad governments and distribution. They say a lot of us know that, that food shortages are a matter of distribution and corruption oftentimes. And you just look say, how does a good God, the God we've been presented with, how in the world does that square with the kind of world in which we experience, not just in Sudanese famines, but in our own lives and in our own relationships? What goes so wrong? And today we see the answer to that question. What goes wrong is that we insert ourselves where God's supposed to be. That the real issue, as we're going to find out in these upcoming moments, is the assertion of ourselves, right, in the, in the place of our maker. It's a prideful autonomy. A prideful autonomy. In other words, we say, this is God's creation. This is what he does. This is what we're supposed to do. And here we say, all of us, Adam and Eve first, but each of us subsequently say, no thanks to that. I'm going to do it on my own and consequently the sin disease has infected each one of us and the creation itself and today we'll learn a bit more about this transgression I know it's a couple weeks we'll be looking at chapter 3 today on how this happened and then in weeks to come really the consequences more on the consequences of that but how does this happen and to start we'll want to look at this notion of a covenant a covenant. A covenants are one of these, you know, you don't toss this word around with your friends. Where it's a, it's, it has a religious overtone, so it's, it's a religious word. But it's actually, a, it's a very good word to how we understand who God is and who we are. That a covenant, I have one definition on the notes. This is from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You could pick uh, really any systematic theology. I think it'd be close to this. But a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. That is, it's the way we're supposed to behave as God's people. What are the expectations that he has of us uh, for being his creatures and under his authority? So that's what a covenant is. Now you think about how the, the Bible, right, 66 books in the Bible, really is one story. And if we just had a couple of words to say, describe really what, what scripture is, how might we understand it? Say one word would be that this is a covenant agreement. It's God's word to us saying, this is to my people, my followers, as to how I expect them to relate to me. Sometimes, oftentimes, I'll talk about us, Providence Church, as God's covenant community, a local manifestation of God's covenant community, that we belong to him. We've, uh, hopefully, all of us, right, we've come to God on his terms, which is Christ. We've accepted Christ uh, as a substitute for our sins, as God's uh, way of making us right with him. Say, we're his covenant community. What we're trying to do on Sundays throughout the week, say, I, I want to be a good covenant participant, given who God is and what he's called me to be in Christ. That the covenant is a way of understanding all scripture. God's word, what does he expect? And when we go to that couple of verses in chapter 2, 15 to 17, that you really have the covenant commands. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, and work it and keep it. We saw that last week. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And you want to ask, say, why did God have to do that? I mean, isn't it possible he could have just he made everything... He made everything just right. I mean, couldn't he have just taken a step back, right? He just said, you know, you guys do your own thing. I've got you set up nicely. No prohibitions. Just you do your thing and, and I'll, I'll do mine. Why doesn't God do that? And the answer is because we're in a covenant relationship with him, that he's our creator and there's certain expectations of his creation as to how we're to best relate with him and how we're to best flourish. 
And I think as we drive at this a, a bit further, there's a couple things to, to tease out here. A lot of people read this, and they say, well, here we go. This is, this is, a just, this is why God's a tyrant. You see, he just, he just he makes everything, but then immediately he gives us rules. I mean, look at how he just, he, he just launches into this prohibition, and he says all these things that Adam and Eve can't do. Why, why is he just you know, flexing his muscle as this, this mean tyrant in the sky? A lot of people view that about God, but how about this? The ethical vision, that is when the Bible asks us to do things as Christ followers, as people under God's authority, it's not just what we would call a blind prescriptivism. In other words, do we do what the Bible says just because God says it? And that might be reason alone. Uh, God says it, we do it, that's the end of the discussion. What I hope we see is that the covenant obligations that every Christian is under, or the ethical vision of the Bible, is also for our own good because we're God's creatures. You could think about any, any rule of a loving parent along these lines, I think is an analogy, it's not perfect, but you can imagine a father giving a, a teenage son uh, the advice, you say, you don't, you don't wanna get drunk. You don't wanna live a life of drunkenness. Now the teenage boy could say, this tyrant has no reason to tell me what to do. Uh, I'd rather do it my own way, but he's just, he's just giving me this rule and I, I have to blindly obey it because he's my father. You say, you might process it that way, or you could say, and sometimes by experience learning it, you say, well, if I'm drunk often, then I don't feel good and I start to alienate the people around me. I make bad decisions and I can't function in a way that's, pleasing to anybody, including myself. In other words, so then the Father's prohibition is not just a blind prescriptivism, do this because I say so, but rather it's an ethical covenant obligation that allows for human flourishing and allows us to best represent God. And I think that's a good way of understanding all of our covenant uh, responsibilities in the Bible, starting here in chapter two of, the, of Genesis and verse 17. Why does God give us this prohibition in a word to show us our limitations? that we really are creatures, that we really are dependent upon him. Now, nothing's more unfashionable these days than talking along these terms. You say, well, I like independence. The last thing I want anybody to know about me is that I'm needy. I'm not needy. I'm my own man. You say, well, right from the start, we're to remember that we're creatures, that we're dependent upon God, that it's all of him and none of us. You say, even getting up this morning, say we have breath in our lungs, that our organs are working. You say, not again, because we've done everything well, but because we have a merciful and gracious God who made us, who has ordained our days, that we're here because of him, to say it's because of who he is, that I'm a limited, dependent creature. I like the way uh, Calvin, the great reformer, it uh, takes a few times to read. It's in the notes if you want to revisit it this week. But listen to what he says. Why does God forbid this fruit? Why does he make this prohibition? Not because God would have Adam stray as a sheep, without judgment and without choice. In other words, you know, not because he's just being vindictive here, but that he might not seek to be wiser than became him, nor by trusting to his own understanding, cast off the yoke of God and constitute himself in arbiter and judge of good and evil. In other words, Calvin's saying this, that God gives us this prohibition really for our own good so that we don't become uh, too inflated and forget that we're limited creatures who are dependent upon him. That's what he's driving at. You know, it's interesting. I, I will read often secular leadership books, you know, something on managing, managing a team or what. It doesn't matter what leadership book it is or, you know, Harvard Business Review or something like this. They're pretty much uniform in saying bad things happen 
when a manager doesn't understand his limitations. You say, if you're working for somebody or you are somebody who thinks that you have no limitations and that you're accountable to nobody and, and nobody judges you and that you're uh, your own person in that sense, you say, that's a very bad thing. You don't want to work for somebody like that. Rather, good managers and people in authority are precisely those who recognize their limitations to say, wait, I'm not the controller of all things, that I have blind spots and I need others to save me from myself. That's exactly why God, I think, gives this command in Genesis 2. He says, remember, you're creatures. You're dependent upon me. There, there are things that you're, you're not to know. There's things you're to be dependent upon me, that you're in a covenant relationship. And by the way, I think another false way of viewing this, why others have trouble, is to view in a covenant relationship with God as both parties being equal. You know, it's as if, well, it's, it's as if God's somebody else in the room here, you know, or one of your buddies at work. You say, well, who's this other person to tell me how to listen? That's not the vision that we have, right? That clearly in the kind of covenant that the Bible lays out, that God's far superior. He's our maker. That he has every right to tell us how to live and how to flourish because he designed us. So we're in a covenant relationship. God made us. We're his creatures. He does this so that we can be mindful on what's his rightful turf and what's our rightful turf. And that's why it's here. And God can't just be indifferent and hands-off. Now, why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's kind of a perplexing and clumsy title, isn't it? You say, well, why, you know, that's a rather long name for a tree. Uh, certainly there's some purpose in this. Why are they forbidden to eat the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil? And I think what's happening here is this. That the de defining what is the good life what is right and wrong in the hearts of men, and in fact, whose right it is to judge all human history, that is not the rightful turf of finite creatures, but that is the rightful turf of the God who made everything, right? The ability to ultimately define what is good and evil and right and wrong and who is the judge, who is the only judge, that's God's. And that's the tree is called the knowledge of the good and evil. That's not something. Ultimate knowledge of good and evil can't spontaneously come from, from the creatures, but as something bestowed by the creator himself. And so what happens here, right? Adam and Eve take the fruit, the forbidden fruit is from the knowledge of the tree and evil. And it's emblematic of each person saying, God, I don't want you to define good and bad in my life. I'm gonna define that. I don't trust your judgment uh, as a judge, God, I don't trust you to tell me what is right and wrong, but rather I'm going to take that for myself and I'm going to be the one that says what's in bounds and out of bounds in my own life. Say so we have a word for this, right? The, the, the word's autonomy. That the word autonomy literally means a law unto ourselves. And what's so surprising about that is that this be, has become a virtue, that autonomy has become a virtue in our culture to say to be a law unto yourselves, to be somebody who doesn't, you know, really uh, just, that's kind of the number one rule in our culture is to decide your own, you have the freedom to decide your own destiny. You can be a law unto yourselves. Exactly right back to the first pages of the Bible. Is there a God who's framed everything and showed me my limitations? There are some things I can't do. There's an inbounds and out of bounds. There's a right way to behave with him. No thanks. All that's coming down to me. Say, how fascinating, right? You read something like Isaiah chapter 5. It's again, millennia old text. You remember what Isaiah says, woe to my covenant people, woe to the Israelites at the time. Remember what he says, woe to you who call good evil and evil good, who call light dark and dark light, and who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. 
The problem all along, say we cast away what we perceive to be the chains of God's covenant commands, that relationship, we cast it aside, we become a law unto ourselves, we define good and evil, we invert everything, and then find ourselves in a mess. I think it's crucial at this point, this morning, is to not go towards thinking primarily of non-Christians because, well, yeah, look at our non, the non-Christian world. You know, the, the, uh, you know, this happens all the time, but to think about our own hearts. I often find myself sucked in that there are things that I think God's word clearly says this is what it looks like to be in his covenant people and we've actually tried to make some of those things even, even virtuous, haven't we? So I think all kinds of ethics that say once have been clearly uh, outside of God's covenant community now saying, well, these actually are not only bad but they're, they're virtuous and we celebrate them and so forth. I think of that line again in Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet. Remember what Jeremiah says? He says, you know, about God's peace is my people have forgotten how to blush. It's another way of saying there's no taboos anymore. There's nothing forbidden, nothing out of bounds, nothing sacred. Why? Because we're autonomous selves. Nobody has the right to declare anything out of bounds. There's no way we're going to communally blush for our behavior, but rather I'm taking that fruit. Hey, I define what's good and evil in my life, and nobody has, me, has the right to tell me otherwise. Say, so how do we end up where we're at? Say, ultimately, we've usurped, we've taken what is the rightful territory of God's to be the good judge we've taken that on ourselves we've preferred ourselves to God each one of us has looked at ourselves all that we've gone gone astray from God we've preferred ourselves and consequently say the pollution of this behavior is leading to devastating consequences everywhere we look why we've broken we've all broken our covenant relationship with God you know more on this next week but I remember well, this week, uh, Kyle and I were reading a book by John Maxwell about leadership or a chapter on leadership, and it was uh, back in the Nixon administration. You know, Watergate happened, and everybody coming down hard, as probably rightfully so, on the Nixon administration, and Billy Graham made a statement. He said, we all have a little bit of Watergate in us. See, I think that's true. All a bit of duplicity. I've never... I don't have a perfect record. I'm a covenant breaker that I look out for myself that I've not appreciated, that I have limitations as a creature, and that I'm in a covenant relationship with God, say all that at times has gone out the window. I've taken autonomy, and I've become a law unto myself. So we're to live in a covenant relationship with God. Adam and Eve broke that covenant relationship, and so have all of us. Now, moving forward, what about the adversary? So here's one of those points where you wish you had more. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now wait a second here. Where did the serpent come from? God's made all the animals. Everybody's good. Uh, how is this bad adversary on the scene? And again, I wish we had more detail, but here you can get bits from other parts of the Bible, right? We believe in the preponderance of evidence of Scripture, that it's all a communicated truth, so we can gather things from other sections of it, but it's clear that Satan um, is um, a rebel, an early rebel against God, a creature of God, but a rebel of the angelic, uh, of, of demons, of rebellious demons. And here we have to pause. You say, well, always want to get right that Satan is a creature under God's authority. 
So some of us would be tempted to say, well, you're reading in Genesis 3 and you think of two cosmic powers, the light, which is God, and the dark, which is uh, Satan, and they're duking it out, something like the ancient Persian religion of Zoroastrianism where you have the two cosmic battles and we don't really know who's going to win because they're co-equal. Say, that's not the case here. That Satan was created by God, he does nothing without God's permission. What Satan does in his evil and malevolence is ultimately worked to God's purposes. That yes, we humans rebel, we're responsible for our decisions. Each of us, as I said, have gone our own way. We've done that willingly. But there is an adversary who God is using and permitting to bring about his ends. So maybe say that's very confusing. Can you make it more concrete? I think the best example, the clearest example we have as Christ followers is the cross. To say Satan enters Judas, right? Judas the betrayer. Say Judas is responsible for his behavior. Judas did exactly what Judas wanted to do in betraying Christ for the silver. He did what he wanted to do. But also there was an instigator, the adversary, who's being used to God's purposes because the cross itself was the very means by which Satan is crushed. So not two co-equal powers, but rather the drama of history is to say there is an adversary who's a creation of God who's permitted for a time to work God's purposes to lead us astray. And more important than thinking, I guess, just based on what scripture gives us, than on the origins of Satan, where we should spend more of our time is thinking about how Satan works. Because while being so very old from the very beginning that his methods, he's not a great innovator that Satan's methods of leading God's children away have stayed very much the same. And you can follow along with me. But notice first that he goes for the mind. Do you remember back when we were looking at Luke this summer and Jesus' temptation? Say, a lot of people say, Satan, the devil, that's weird. Maybe, you know, Halloween, you'll see, if your neighborhood's doing trick-or-treating, you'll see somebody come as a little red a little red person with horns and you say well you know we don't have these or this in Avon or Avon Lake or Bayville wherever you live you say I don't believe in Satan never seen anything like that say if that's our view of Satan no wonder we dismiss him but rather Satan is the one who hates God and tries to get us to uh, dismiss Jesus that Satan's the one who tries to get us to create a distance between us and God and certainly not to come to terms with God by means of Jesus and he wages war just as he did with Jesus in the temptation scene in the gospel he wages war on our minds and as you'll notice here in these methods that Satan doesn't use an, an all-out onslaught of obviously immoral behavior say a lot of us when we see pure evil we say we're not enticed by that at all I mean it's categorically evil I'm not drawn towards it Satan does something much more dangerous, and that is that he uses subterfuge and cunning and gets us leaning. Look at the way he works from verse 1. So the serpent comes on, the personality of Satan has taken possession of a serpent that is the real animal. We believe this is historical narrative, right? The fact that he's more crafty than the other animals God has made, I think is clearly getting us to see that this is a real serpent, that this, the personality of Satan is occupied to lead God's people astray, to break their covenant obligations. And he just begins with this. How simple. Did God actually say? Did he actually say? All Satan does is to get us questioning whether or not this wonderful God speaks and whether he speaks truth. Say how many in the post-Christian world, you say this has been the one thing 
is the Bible God speaking? I don't think the Bible's God speaking. I mean, this old book that's been around forever, I mean, do we really supposed to say that our God speaks, that he's actually said? I'm much more with the, you know, the Gentleman's Quarterly article a few years ago that says the Bible's one book you don't need to read anymore. God doesn't speak. I mean, it might be a nice concept. We might all behave a little bit better if we go to church, but God doesn't really speak. He doesn't know what's best for me. He's not laid it out clearly as to what I'm supposed to do. Does God actually say Say, just casting doubt as to whether we have a good speaking God, a one who's laid out his terms clearly, a one who says, this is what it means to follow me. Or do we say all in the textual criticism, right, in the last couple hundred years that it's all just parsed, all we have is a nice piece of literature here, nothing to pay attention to. That's all it is. God doesn't speak. He doesn't actually say. And Satan, in just that word, can often get us leaning. Does God speak? But then from there... He presses it a bit further, and he questions the goodness of God. You say, did God actually say, you shall not eat from, one word difference, any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you cannot eat from any tree of the garden? Let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 16, which Tom read. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, listen, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. God says you can eat from every tree in the garden except the one. Satan says, did God actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's a one-word difference that makes a huge impact on our minds. That what Satan does is he takes God's generosity and graciousness and kindness, the great liberality, lowercase l, the great liberality of God. You can eat from everything that I've made. I've made it here for, for your benefit. You're to subdue it. You're to have dominion. You're to make a civilization. out. It's all here for your benefit. You can have every tree of the garden. And Satan says, did God say you can't have any of the fruit from the trees? He takes God's graciousness and he makes it into a negative and makes it sound as if God's limiting. Say God is the life giver. He's the gracious life giver who's given over and above everything that we could ever imagine, right? He's a God of abundance, and Satan wants us to see him as a life taker. And again, you talk to people, it doesn't take long for them to kind of go down this line, right? Well, I don't think God actually speaks. Definitely don't believe God's word is a word to his people as to how we're to relate with him. All we have is a good piece of literature. And, you know, if there is a God, a little bit that I know about him, he's not good. I mean, the last thing I need is more rules. The last thing I need is that tyrant in the sky laying everything, telling me what to do, taking away my freedom. Say, so a lot of people have that view of God, right? That he's, he's the great limiter. He's the great life taker. If I'm really going to experience life, I can't have God in the picture. Say again, Satan, little red guy running around with horns. Nobody's worried about that. But if his aim is to get us to doubt that God speaks and to doubt God's goodness, say, look at how effective he's been. Say, look across Western Europe and talk to the young people. God doesn't speak. He's a mean God. He's a tyrant. No freedom and no life in him. No thanks. And then thirdly, he moves to the deliberate lie in verse 4, only after he gets Adam and Eve leaning. Verse 4, he says that you will not surely die. 
if you eat. A direct, again, a direct confrontation. 2.17, if you eat of it in the day that you eat of it, God says you will surely die. Satan says you will not surely die. So he moves here to a direct contradiction of God's word, but does so with verse 5, which is the greatest enticement of all, I think, and that is that we can be our own gods. That if you do this, you can be like God. Wait a second here. Doesn't it all play along? You say how great this is on the American mind that I don't need God. He doesn't really speak. He's not laid down any parameters of my life. I don't need, you know, I'm not dependent upon him. He's not very good. He's quite restrictive. And in fact, I can be my own God and I can define what's right and what's wrong. And we've celebrated this. We've celebrated this as the great virtue that we become our own gods. And you see what's happened then here, right? We had something that was highly integrated, a life under the authority of God in harmony, and we've moved because we casted doubt on our good creator to a more disintegrated, fragmented life where we're moving back into ourselves and defining right and wrong for ourselves. The adversary's pattern of deception, ladies and gentlemen, again, you look this, I can't believe we're reading about a talking serpent this morning. I actually have real responsibilities this week. Don't you know there's a pandemic? What does this have to do? And I hope you see that again, Satan very consistent in his methods. God doesn't speak. He's not good. You can be your own God. And many of us, again, not only talking about non-Christians, I'm talking about those of us who are Christ followers are tempted along these lines. I know that I am. The adversary's pattern of deception is consistent. Now, what about our pattern when we sin? Our pattern when we sin. I want to begin here by talking about how this text has been misused. That this text, like others that we've looked at, has been used to... um, Propagate the false view that women are seductresses and evil. Like to say, after all, all these problems, I mean, you started off by talking about, you know, the child in Sudan who's starving. Look at this. All this is the problem because of, because of Eve. And I have in mind here how this motif has sadly been repeated throughout, you know, something like Shakespeare's Macbeth. If you look at Lady Macbeth, I mean, clearly Shakespeare is playing on this theme. You say, that's wrong. And it's very, there's a couple of things that we often overlook very clearly to see why that's wrong. Look at verse 6. You say, verse 6, she took the fruit and ate it, but she also gave some to her husband, and then look, right there, plain as could be, right? Who's with her? Adam's there the whole time. All the, the words you in this narrative that we've read are you plural. Satan's talking to both of them. So anything that starts to go down the line of look at how, uh, you know, Satan tempted Eve because she's emotionally weaker and we all know women are seductresses and, you know, women are Eve. Say, all that's wrong and patriarchal. That's not, I, I think, as we'll see, why does Satan do it this way? To put pressure on that marriage. To separate the man and the woman. Say, so remember two weeks ago, we talked about husband and wife being gifts to one another to being gifts of a loving creator, to be in harmony. Say, Satan knows how to put that pressure on those complementary roles. And as we'll see, the two start to think of each other as enemies. And again, you feel that pressure in our marriages today that our spouse is not our enemy, but our spouse is actually a gift from God. Exactly why Satan goes for Eve so that she can be the means by siphoning Adam off and putting pressure on those God-ordained roles. That's what's happening. It's not patriarchy. It's not Eve as seductress. But the pattern which which, which Eve and uh, Adam, but Eve as described here, follows is one we need to pay attention to. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate Those verbs, see, desire, take. 
See, desire, take. I think is how all human minds work when we transgress. Take a read this week sometime. Read Joshua chapter 7 and pay close attention to 721, verse 21. This is Achan. Achan's the one who steals the spoils, right? God says, don't take the spoils, and Achan takes the riches. And when Achan confesses, he says this, I saw the spoils, I coveted them, and I took them. I don't have time this morning, but read James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, where James talking about how desire gives birth to sin, right? They say God doesn't tempt anyone. He's not the source of evil, but each one of us, right, that we see, we desire, and we take. And how often this is, right, that you see with your eyes, you start to internalize, say, that would be really nice to have. That would feel good. Boy, that would make life a lot easier. If I just cut that corner, nobody's going to find out. And then we find ourselves taking and indulging that we see, we entertain with our minds, and we take. What breaks that cycle is the great question, right? The great question of sanctification, how we rely on God's spirit to do so. But the pattern when we sin is the same pattern as the, the early, right? We're tempted, we get doubting God, we become our own gods, we see all oh, that, it must be nice, and before we know it, we take. And look at what happens immediately, more on the consequences next week, but immediately shame is awakened. You can ask, what's the first emotion in the Bible? Uh, the first emotion after the, in the fallen world? Well, it's shame. 225, the man and the woman are naked and they're not ashamed. And then 27, right, their eyes are open, they're naked and they're ashamed that they cover themselves, they hide from God. So think of what's happened here. Again, moving towards more disintegration. The great harmony of God and his creatures, now they're hiding from God, using his creation to hide from him that they feel ashamed, a terrible position, we've all been there, that when we've done wrong and we wanna hide and we don't want anybody to find us out, if only I can just keep stuffing that down, stuffing down the shame and the embarrassment of my wrongdoing and say that doesn't feel good at all. They feel ashamed and then you almost, if it wasn't so sad, I think you'd, you'd laugh, wouldn't you, at verse 12. Say just like every marriage, what happened here? A man said what? My wife made me do it. The gift of the wife that you brought me, God, made me do this. It's not my fault. You rationalize it by blaming those around you. Say how very relevant. It's not my fault. I mean, I know that I've done wrong, but it's really my circumstances. It's the people you put in my life. That's the real problem here. The woman that you gave me, God, she's the reason I transgressed. And the woman, similar, right? It's the serpent. The problem's never in the room. So we stuff our shame, we don't want to confess, we blame shame shift, we rationalize our sin, and we become a shell of what we're designed to be, which is the flourishing creatures that God made us. And again, the pressure on the marriage is evident. You see, I'll talk more about this, in, but you see what happens, right? This great unity of the husband and the wife, and now this little temptation, the transgression, now there's finger pointing, my wife is not a gift, my husband's not a gift, he's my enemy. He's the one who made me, she's the one who made me do that. That pressure, Satan knew exactly what to do to go for the marriage. Now, I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I hope what we've seen here today is that we're in a covenant relationship with God because he's our creator and we're his creatures. The ethical vision of the Bible is for our own flourishing, not because God's a tyrant who gives us a bunch of laws, but because when we obey them, that we best represent him and best occupy, best uh, spend our time while we're here. Satan's pattern of deception, very consistent, gets us doubting God's word and his goodness and tempts us to be our own God, to define our own right and wrong. And then the pattern when we sin, we entertain things and we take, we feel ashamed and we blame other people. Now, if you're a Christian today, 
See, there's a wonderful part in this passage too, and that's this, that after they transgress, what does God do? He initiates. He walks in the garden. As we sang in the second song, right? God condescends to our level. Here we are in our misery and our shame and our finger pointing. You say, I've made a mess of everything. God comes down and he walks. Almost all commentators say how intimate that is that God comes down with his people and that's the great distinctive of Christianity, right? God's come down in a person, in the person of Jesus. That no matter what level our shame is and our transgression and our finger pointing, they say we always have a way back that he's come down to us. And you say, why does God ask those questions? Say, why does he ask them where they are and what they've done and who did this? Is that because God didn't know? You say, no, it's not because God did. Why does he ask those questions to give us an opportunity to confess our sins before him? So we don't have to stuff the shame and do the finger pointing and live in, in that kind of misery, but rather God asks us, say, God, you know what? I have broken your covenant commands and I want to come back on your terms, which is the Lord Jesus sacrificed for us as we trust in him. And if you're not a Christian today, or maybe you're raised in a Christian family and you've not really thought about this, or so I don't believe in that myth and that talking serpent and everything. I hope at a level that this has spoken really well to the world in which we see things. To say, I see that God set everything up in a highly integrated way where there's harmony, that I'm right with him and right with other people, and that's the exact opposite of what I'm experiencing now, you might say. Is there any hope? Say, yes, there is hope in the God-man Jesus who's restoring all things and will ultimately restore all things. And today's your day to say, God, I, I don't want to feel this disintegrated, shameful manner, uh, life anymore, but rather I want to be right with you and whole to say yes to Jesus, to enter into the covenant relationship with him and live out that way. So that's the path to wholeness and rightness with him as we long for the day when things are restored. I'll pray and invite the team up. Lord, we read this today and say, Adam and Eve point the finger at them as we learn about it, say, well, it's their fault that we've gotten this predicament, but rather we would say we have been unfaithful covenant partners, that we fail to represent you well, to use our faculties in the rightful way, to use our resources well. We've um, made a mess of a lot. And rather, uh, Father, we've doubted your word. We've doubted your goodness. We've been tempted to become gods ourselves. We define right and wrong and say each one of these things in our, our, the first part of the Bible is something that we experience often. And I hope at the very least say your word is true, that you've described, uh, the Bible describes our own hearts so well. But Lord, thank you for coming down as you did then to walk in the garden to give the opportunity of confession that we don't need to live in, in, in the shame and hiding from you, pretending to hide from you, but rather that we can come clean and say there's been a provision made in Jesus. I don't have to claw my way back, but he's paid it all. And so, Lord, help us this week even to appreciate again what you've done for us, to be aware of the patterns by which we transgress and to be strengthened by your spirit. So help us to know the adversary's patterns, Lord, and to cut them off and to rely on you represent you well. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together and sing our hope.